Hello, and welcome to As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Kara Sellison. And I'm Sharon Shu. Today we're talking about Strong Poison, wherein Lord Peter has the meet-cute of his life, with someone standing trial for murder. <laughs> So, Karis, we are trying something a little bit new. Yeah, so we're starting to get into the books where we feel that we need more time to discuss. When we discussed Unpleasantness at the Bologna Club, we tried splitting the book into more episodes and we found that we got bogged down in the fact that we couldn't talk about things because we weren't to that section of the book yet. And it felt pretty constricting. So as we move forward, we're going to try a different format where we are talking about the first 11 chapters of Strong Poison. So the first half. Yeah, the first half. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about it over two episodes. So that's going to give us more room to kind of talk about the larger themes, the larger events, without having to cram everything in the third episode where we're finally free to talk about <laughs> stuff. Yes. So it feels like we've been waiting for so long to get to this particular book. And now we're finally here. <laughs> we're finally here and we finally get to meet Harriet Vane. I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. Yeah, let's let's talk about how we meet her because the first chapter of this book is really weird to me. I mean, like weird and fascinating and wonderful. I love the first chapter of this book. I know that some people probably say I shouldn't say no. <laughs> I imagine that some people probably find it boring and tedious because it's a lot of, you know, it's it's an info dump. Mhm. Which is one of those things you're not supposed to do. <laughs> Sarah's just breaking rules left and right. <laughs> just out the window. But, you know, like that's like a, such a huge piece of writing advice that people are just like, oh, don't do info dumps. I'm just like, I love this info dump. <laughs> Give me more of it. It actually reminds me of, I don't, this may be before you joined Readerville, but there was a book that the young adult reading group was discussing. The beginning of the book, the first several paragraphs are all about how there's orange juice on the breakfast table that's kind of used as a vehicle to be like this is where they are geographically and this is what's going on politically and the group was kind of split on liking the orange juice or hating the orange <laughs> juice to the point where someone made buttons and somewhere in my somewhere in a keepsake box I have a button that says that I'm pro juice <laughs> that's amazing and so like it is just a fact that I am I'm pro juice <laughs> Meaning that I do like to get lots of world building, but I like the world building to come to me through an object, you know, mm -hmm. or if this book just started with this is what happened at the trial, that would be different. But I love the way it comes kind of through multiple different little character sketches of the different people who are in the audience mm -hmm. and like reacting to the information. Yeah. And so like we do... I guess we, we should give some context, but like what's happening is that the trial is kind of at an end. All the evidence has been heard. The lawyers have presented their final arguments and the judge is giving the summing up mm -hmm. where he is summarizing the trial. Like this is pages and pages of him talking. And that's used to deliver all this information about the investigation because this is a book that begins with the crime has been committed, the crime has been investigated, a conclusion has been reached, there has been a trial, and we're at the end of that trial. And so 
the judge's speech is summarizing all of the information for us, like on the pretext of he's reminding the jury of everything that they need to take into consideration before they go and deliberate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we as readers are really put into the place of that jury, right? Because the judges throughout most of this chapter addressing them directly as you, but then of course we -hmm. become implicated in that you. And and it's really cool how mm. the book has different characters sort of observing that the judge is hostile to the defendant. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, our dear friend Waffles Newton, the newspaper man with the <laughs> with the best name ever. Yeah, in Salcombe Hardy. Yeah, is, notes that the judge is being hostile. And so this is also like very deliberately pointed out as like a narrative with, with bias, like inherent in it, mm-hmm. right? Which... Yeah. Which is really interesting, too, because, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I drew a big circle around the very first sentence and wrote, like, whose perspective are we in? Mm, that's a good question. Yeah, because the first line reads, there were crimson roses on the bench, semicolon. They looked like splashes of blood. And it's like, I don't know. It's just Sayers is so masterful because we slide from this very objective observation, right? There were crimson roses on the bench. And then in the space of a semicolon, we're in subjective interpretation. They look like splashes mm-hmm. of blood. Well, who do they look like splashes of blood to? Carriot? Peter? Oh. Like, who? Who? <laughs> that is interesting. Because, you know, like in my notes, I put that in this chapter, we aren't in Peter's head at all. Mm-hmm. And I think I would agree with that. Except that you've just changed my mind because I'm just like, I feel like, I feel like it has to be Peter who's looking at that. But don't you think and- it could be Harriet as well? I think it could be, it could be, but I'm inclined to think that it's more likely to be Peter. Mm. But I like, like, I like the fact that it's not specified. Right. Where it's almost as though the narrator, this pretext of this omniscient narrator we have is, Mm. is sort of, I don't know, like that, that a kind of subjectivity is breaking through. Right. Yeah. Because then it's, it's almost like the camera cranes out and, you know, we have the judge and then we see Sal and Mm -hmm. Waffles talking to each other. And it's not until several pages later that we even know that Peter's in the room. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just, it's really good. I think I could make an argument for it being Peter's like subjective influence kind of coming through because all the other things that we like all the character portraits that we observe Mm -hmm. are all people in the audience. Mm -hmm. And so you could make an argument that it's Peter overhearing those bits of Mm, conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I think it would also explain why um, in some ways, like the description of the judge feels a bit. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I love the description of the judge. Right. Like it, I, I feel like it could come from Peter's point of view because he's not very happy with the mm-hmm. judge. <laughs> right. Yeah, the the judges described like the judge was an old man, so old he seemed to have outlived time and change and death. His parrot face and parrot voice were dry, like his old, heavily veined hands. I'm just like, ooh. Yeah. You know, there's very little physical description in this first chapter because it is primarily dialogue. Mm-hmm. And the little bits of physical description that there are are so evocative. Yeah. Our first, almost our only look at Harriet is um, she's she's named as the prisoner, right? She's not named as herself. Mm. And then it says her eyes like dark smudges under the heavy square brows seemed equally without fear and without hope. They waited. Like, that's mm. it. <laughs> 
Yeah. Mm. So having gone into raptures about like the the form of this chapter and how interesting it is, should we outline a little bit a much shorter summation maybe than the judge is giving? <laughs> But a summation of the case as it exists at the moment. Yeah, we probably should. <laughs> we probably should. Yeah, I can, in sum, the judge is addressing the jury about the case of the poisoning of a young artist, or artiste, as he probably would have liked to think of himself, <laughs> Philip Boys. Philip Boys was a writer. He wrote very... You know, we'll, we'll come to find out later that he wrote sort of like highbrow, literary, serious mm-hmm. books. Mm-hmm. The judge calls them things that were sometimes called of an advanced type <laughs> and points out that they preach doctrines which may seem to some of us immoral or seditious, yes. such as atheism and anarchy <laughs> and what is known as free love. Mm-hmm. So that's what the judge thinks about that. <laughs> so yeah, so Philip's kind of part of that whole bohemian circle, you know, probably a, mm. a wannabe modernist. And I think we'll we'll talk much more next episode about kind of the real life influences Sayers was drawing from. Yeah. So he meets Harriet Vane, our defendant, and as the judge puts it, starts badgering her to live with him. He claims he is not interested in marriage. And finally, she gives in and, you know, cuts ties with her family, cuts ties with her friends, because she has been convinced to do something kind of against her own morals. Mm -hmm. And then so nearly a year goes by, and he proposes marriage to Harriet. And that's the point at which she flies into a rage, because in her point of view, it's like, you've you've made a fool out of me, right? You've convinced me mm-hmm. that in order to be with you, I have to give up something that I hold really dearly and strongly. And turns out it was just a test. So she leaves him at that point. Boys moves in with a cousin, Norman Urquhart, who is a lawyer, has, starts having some stomach troubles. And kind of around the same time, Harriet is doing research for a new novel of hers uh, about arsenic poisoning. So the case brings up the fact that she'd gone to various different chemists and under a bunch of aliases and false stories, bought up a large stock of arsenic. And her Mm -hmm. alibi is that she's a writer. She's doing research. That's kind of like the plot of her next novel. The problem is that Philip Boys at one point, there's an evening, you know, they've they've sort of run into each other socially at various points. And then he writes her a note saying, I want to see you. I want to see if we can, I cannot understand your attitude. I'd, I'd like to just make you see things in the right perspective. And if not, I'm just going to like check it and move out West once and for all. So, you know, he eats a hearty dinner with his cousin. He goes to see Harriet. They have coffee. They quarrel again. And when he gets home, he takes very, very ill with like violent stomach troubles and dies a few days later. And at first everyone's like, oh, well, he's always had gastritis. It's just, you know, sort of bad luck. But an enterprising nurse points out some some uh, irregularities about the case. And as we know from a natural death, when that happens, somebody starts going digging. And they discover at that point that Philip Boys was poisoned with rather a large amount 
of arsenic. Just an excessive amount of arsenic. Lots and lots of arsenic. And obviously, who has access to all this arsenic? Harriet. And there's, you know, there's a long bit about how meticulously the police went through all the things that he'd eaten that evening with his cousin. And every dish was like, both of them had some and then it was sent down. The only thing that boys... Mm -hmm had that nobody else shared was a glass of burgundy but they've tested the bottle no arsenic could be found so so Mm -hmm. yeah things are looking pretty bad for harriet at this point yeah a point that is mentioned that's worth bringing up is that philip boyce's hair that they found arsenic in his hair Mm -hmm. which shows that he was dosed with arsenic more than once yes because it leaves the deposit in hair and fingernails that then would grow out. And so the judge kind of explains this and says that the conclusion that the police reached was that he had been dosed with arsenic a couple of times before, and those incidences approximately correlate to roughly the times that he had met Harriet Vane in social settings Mm -hmm. at, you know, kind of like informal studio parties where they had accidentally run into each other after the breakup yeah and so there's there's this unfortunate matchup of timelines Mm -hmm. that looks quite suspicious yes and this is where the judge's hostility is is very evident right um Mm -hmm. he it's really interesting to me how much the narrative sort of through the judge makes explicit kind of like what we all do as readers right we make interpretations we perform close readings like he, you know, he brings up the note that boys sent around to Harriet and's like, well, the defense would like you to think that he was saying he was possibly going to kill himself. And that's what it meant by saying he was going out west, which is a common metaphor for suicide. But like, he doesn't say I interpret it as this way, but it, he's sort of like reminding the jury that there are these other other interpretations that can be made from the same text. And I'm just, I'm just delighted because that's, that's very much what we as detective fiction readers do, right? There's, there's this like Mm -hmm. kind of hermeneutics of suspicion that we're always bringing to close reading to trying to picking up (laughs) clues. And it's just like made very, very evident here how the judge is interpreting events and is like not himself actually an objective force. Yeah. Oh, also, I wanted to bring up because it's just delightful. There's this point where he's talking about all the things that boys ate, I think on a different trip, where he also magically seemed to become healthier away from London. Right. He went away to Wales and felt so much better. Mm-hmm. Suspicious. But the judge says, at 11 o'clock, boys had a Guinness, observing that, according to the advertisements, it was good for you. And I just wanted to flag that because <laughs> Sayers... For, for much of the 1920s was working for an advertising agency and she was actually the like part of the mm-hmm. team who came up with the the Guinness is good for you toucan ad- advertisement so I was like oh she's doing a little shout out to herself mm-hmm. it's so delightful yeah <laughs> anyway I'll scare up a like one of those ads and put it in the show notes yes but yeah the toucan spawned a whole advertising campaign of zoo animals, but the toucan specifically, the jingle that went with it, I think is attributed to Sayers. Mm-hmm. And we will, you know, not to worry readers, we'll, we'll talk at length in our next episode about kind of the intersections of Sayers' personal life and this book. So yes, we're not going to info dump it here, but stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, stay tuned. So yeah, so... <laughs> The judge gives his thorough summing up. Oh, it's so thorough that it goes over two chapters. Mm -hmm. And 
we know that Whimsy is in the in the audience of the trial. Freddie Arbuthnot is also there. And so is the Dowager Duchess, mm-hmm. Whimsy's mother. And we also find, once the judge sends the jury off to deliberate, that there's someone else we know from previous books. Yes, Miss Clemson, who just happens to be on the jury. <laughs> just happens to. On the very first page, we get a summary of the people who are in the jury. Mm-hmm. And she's not named then. It just says that there were three women, an elderly spinster, a stout, capable woman who kept a sweet shop, but a harassed wife and mother. (laughs) But it's not just any elderly spinster. It's our elderly spinster. It's Miss Clemson. It's Miss Clemson. So the jury goes out and everyone is expecting a quick verdict because everyone's just like, ooh, it seems so obvious. Mm -hmm. And then we get this. We get this interlude, which I think is really fun, where the narrative is is telling us how long it's going. Mm -hmm. We've taken two chapters to do the summing up. And in chapter three, we're getting the wait for the verdict. Like Waffles, Newton. It's like, they won't be long. It's pretty damned obvious. So, so like Waffles, Newton goes off to to drop some stuff off at his newspaper because it's like it's evening because the summation took so long. Mm-hmm. And there's we get some more character portraits. Like I love this little reference here to Cuthbert Logan, mm, yes. who reported for a morning paper and was a man of more leisure, <laughs> who settled down to write a word picture of the trial. And then there's we get a description of you know everyone everyone leaves because it's recess because the jury is deliberating. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's Sir M.P. Biggs, having watched over his client's interest to the last, disappeared, chatting cheerfully to the attorney general, and followed by the smaller legal fry. The dock was deserted. On the bench, the red roses stood solitary, their petals dropping. Mm. <laughs> and oh, there's there's so there's a lot there's a there's a lot of symbolism in those roses, which we get described twice. Yeah, it's so interesting how the the mechanics of the law are just you know the gears of the law are just kind of grinding on, right? It's very mm-hmm. it's very business as usual in a, in a lot of ways. Like mm-hmm. the newspaper people are like, oh yeah, this will you know. This will come back, no problem. We'll be able to file and just leave. And Yeah, we'll be able to get our story in for the morning edition. Yeah, and MP Biggs is, you know, seems cheerful, even though yeah. for all appearances, it seems like his client is about to be convicted for murder. So not sure why yeah. why he's so laissez-faire. But he gets paid either way. I guess so, yeah. It's at this point that we see Parker. It says, Chief Inspector Parker. He got his promotion. <laughs> it says he came slowly up through the crowd and greeted the dowager. And what do you think of it, Peter? He added, turning to Whimsy. Rather neatly got up, eh? And this is the first time that we find out what Whimsy is thinking. Mm-hmm. Because he says, Charles, you ought not to be allowed out without me. You made a mistake, old man. Yeah. And we find out that Whimsy is 100% immovably convinced that Harriet Vane is innocent, even though we have just been given a very convincing amount of evidence. Pages and pages of evidence. Very damning evidence. But Peter is convinced that she didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And Parker's just like, oh, come. And Peter says she did not do it. It's very convincing and watertight, but it's all wrong. And it says Parker looked distressed. He had confidence in Whimsy's judgment. And in spite of his own interior certainty, he felt shaken. And I think, like, I think that that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we talked in our last episode about the unpleasantness at the Bologna Club. 
about when it came to Anne Dorland, Peter was relying a lot on his intuition. Mm -hmm. He saw her studio, he looked at her paintings, and it told him something that it didn't tell Parker. Something beyond the facts of what were in the room, right? Mm -hmm. Because we saw Parker see Anne Dorland's studio before Peter, right? And for Parker, it was an assembly of objects. And the objects had a certain amount of significance. Like, oh, there's books about crime. Oh, there's books about chemistry. Oh, there's, you know, like bottles and things, which were all very suggestive to him. And then Peter goes and looks at it and is more interested in the paintings and comes to a very different conclusion. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting the way that we see Parker being like a very facts-oriented detective. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is a quite quite good type of detective to be if you're going to be a professional police detective, probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he even says that Peter, I mean, like Peter acknowledges there's nothing wrong about the case that you've built. It's mm-hmm. it's knife proof. The only thing wrong is that the girl's innocent. Yeah. And Parker accuses him of, you know, turning into a common or garden psychologist, right? So Parker is acknowledging like you're, you are sort of depending on an intuition about somebody's character mm-hmm. and whether they would be capable of murder, like more than you're depending on the facts. Mm-hmm. But like, I also like the fact that Parker, even though he, like he's kind of brushing it off in this scene, mm-hmm. but like, as the book goes on, we see him take Peter seriously or like, even when he's not convinced. Yes. He's, he's like, well, I'll help you. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm going to support you investigating, even though I'm not sure. Yeah. Which that is, a you know, like that reminds me of um, Unnatural Death, mm. where most of the book, or at least half the book, Parker is just like, there isn't a case here. Why are we doing this? <laughs> but he's still there doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's definitely, there's also the callback to Clouds of Witness, right? Where... Mm. Peter, like later on when Peter goes to see Parker and I need you to put some people on tracking down if it was possible that Philip Boyce died by suicide, Parker says, anybody would think you've gone goopy over the girl. (laughs) And (laughs) Peter very bitterly points out, you know, how Parker went off on the deep end about Mary (laughs) during that case. Goopy indeed, I never heard anything so vulgar. But the (laughs) the moment that Parker realizes that Peter has, in fact gone goopy for Harriet he's he goes quite serious you know he's like oh if it's like that I'm damn sorry old man yeah so there's a there's a way in which you know the book points out the the rhyme between what happens to both of them right of like falling Mm -hmm. for a defendant or falling for someone who seems to be wrapped up in a case that they should be very objective about yeah yeah and Miss Clemson also has an intuition she want to talk about that yeah that's such an important hinge and like when Whimsy is talking to Parker at the trial, Parker says, Whimsy, I wish you'd tell me. And Peter says, too late, too late. You cannot enter now. <laughs> I've locked my heart in a silver box and pinned it with a golden pen. Mm. Nobody's opinion matters now except the jury's. I expect Miss Clemson is telling them all about it. And then it kind of goes on to give us hints about how long it's taking. Mm-hmm. They've been out an hour and a half, said a girl to her fiance just behind Whimsy. And then, like a little bit later, I've been talking to one of the ushers, said the man who knows the ropes, importantly, to a friend. <laughs> the judge has just sent round to the jury to ask if he can help them in any way. And so, like, the jury deliberates for five hours. And at five hours, there's a terrific crowd in the street, said the man who knows the ropes, returning from a reconnaissance. The jury eventually comes back and says that they can't agree. And the judge sends them to deliberate some more. It turns out, after 
six hours and a half of jury deliberation. The jury can't agree. Mm -hmm. So it's a hung trial. They'll have to do another one. Right. And it's very clear that Miss Clemson was the sticking point. Mm -hmm. And Peter, like Freddie Arbuthnot, sort of accuses Peter of jury tampering. Um, <laughs> He's like, did you wink at her? Yeah. And Peter's like, I didn't. Believe me or believe me not, I refrain from so much as a lifted eyebrow, which is an important point, right? Because you, you can't tamper yes. with witnesses. That's a, that's not a yeah. good thing to do. Yes. No, like influencing a jury is, is not good. Mm -hmm. Yes. Did I say tamper with witnesses but, or tamper with a jury? You, you said witnesses. Oh, well. That is also a bad thing. Yeah. It's yeah. on my mind well, for some reason right now. <laughs> um, but tampering tampering with the jury, also bad. Yeah, also also very bad. Yeah. Yes. But it does lead us mm -hmm. to it does lead us to one of my favorite things, which is like the judge says, there's nothing for it but to discharge you, the jury, and order a fresh trial. The formalities are done and Whimsy rushes off to talk to Sir MP Biggs and asks to be like sworn in as a clerk or something so that he can interview Harriet Vane. Mm -hmm. As soon as he's done that, he rushes off round to the side door from which the jury were just emerging. Last of them all, her hat askew and her Macintosh dragged awkwardly round her shoulders came the elderly spinster. And, you know, she's telling him about like, oh, it was my fault that we couldn't come to a, a decision, but I couldn't in conscience say that she had done it when I was sure she hadn't, could I? And Peter says, you're absolutely right. She didn't do it. And thank God you stood up to them and gave her another chance. I'm going to prove she didn't do it. And I'm going to take you out to dinner. And I say, Miss Clemson. Yes. I hope you won't mind because I haven't shaved since this morning. But I'm going to take you around the next quiet corner and kiss you. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> and we, we know from the locked room that Peter is quite a good kisser. So, <laughs> Yes. And I just love that. I, I I hope you won't mind because I haven't shaved since this morning. <laughs> Ever the gentleman. Yes. So we've kind of talked about Peter's feelings already. Uh, but I think it's really interesting that we're three chapters in. We get into the fourth chapter. And Peter's interest in the case hasn't been explained beyond the fact that he believes that Harriet Vane is innocent, right? Mm -hmm. It's not until we get into chapter four and Peter meets Harriet Vane face to face and tells her that he wants to marry her. That's the first <laughs> time as readers that we're just like, wait, what? <laughs> because this is the first time that he's met her, but in seeing her in the course of the trial, Peter has fallen in love with Harriet Vane. Head over heels absolutely twitter painted mm -hmm. yeah there's this amazing line like right when he is conducted into like the interview room at the jail he's like kind of unnerved i think by by being yeah. in her presence and it was like er, er, I, er, I heard about the case and uh thought there might be something i could do you know uh i rather enjoy <laughs> investigating things if you know what i mean and Harriet responds, being a writer of detective stories, I have naturally studied your career with interest. And the next line says, she smiled suddenly at him and his heart turned to water, which, oh, that's, this is so good. Um, yes. And he's just making such an ass of himself because like the, the, the silly act is, is like quite inappropriate under these circumstances. Right. And he, like, he, he just doesn't know what to do with himself mm -hmm. because... And, you know, I think that what's tripping him up is that he's torn between the mannerism that he usually puts on when he interviews people mm -hmm. 
and the fact that he wants to be genuine with her yes and like he like he's just sincerely nervous and it's so cute it's really cute because we're so used to seeing peter be just completely suave Mm -hmm. and he is just (laughs) he's just kind of ass over tea kettle in love yeah and it's I mean, it's just so funny how the narrative really just keeps puncturing that bubble. Like when he asks, mm-hmm. when he asks her to marry him, you know, Harriet Vane, who had been smiling at him, frowned, and an indefinable expression mm-hmm. of distaste came into her eyes. Oh, are you another of them? That makes forty-seven. Forty-seven. What? <laughs> said Whimsy, much taken aback. Proposals. They come in by every post. I suppose there are a lot of imbeciles who want to marry anybody who's at all notorious. <laughs> so he's, you know, he's sitting there all like, "Oh, I shall ask her to marry me," and then she's like, "Oh, you're one of those." And you know, Peter's never been one of those yeah. in his entire life, right? <laughs> right. He's he's not at all used to that. Yeah. Although I do like he doesn't quite propose. He says, what I mean to say is, when all this is over, I want to marry you if you can put up with me and all that. <laughs> oh, even worse. Yeah. Trying to explain why why he's attracted yeah, to he's her. Like, I just thought you'd be an, an attractive person to marry, that's all. I mean, I sort of took a fancy to you. Yeah. I can't tell you why. There's no rule about it, you know. Life would be so jolly. Like, you seem like someone I could talk sensibly to, and I could give you plots for your books. <laughs> and actually... We don't get a more concrete reason for why Peter fell in love with Harriet until Gaudy Night. So many books so we and are, years later. We are ways off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We are several books and five years mm-hmm. away from from him saying outright what it was yeah. that made him fall in love with her. And it's it, this might be a good time to mention the essay that Sayers wrote about this. So mm-hmm. it was published in 1946, so quite a few years off. Um, and she was she is reflecting on Gaudy Night. The essay is entitled Gaudy Night, and it was collected into The Art of the Mystery Story, which was edited by Howard Haycraft, according to my notes. And she talks mm-hmm. about, I mean, basically at this point, she's been writing Lord Peter for close to a decade, I believe. And... She says, you know, any character that remains static except for a repertory of tricks and attitudes is bound to become a monstrous weariness to his maker in the course of nine or ten volumes. Let me confess that when I undertook Strong Poison, it was with the infanticidal intention of doing away with Peter. That is, of marrying (laughs) him off and getting rid of him. Right. So, like, she really planned to use Harriet Vane as a way to Reichenbach. Exactly. Yeah. She even calls out like the the Reichenbach Falls of, you know, I didn't want to actually kill him, but I I needed to bury the nuisance. (laughs) And she says, two things stood in the way of my fell purpose. First, in accordance with the general contradictoriness of things, just as I had decided that I could not do with Peter for a single moment more, the multitudes began, though rather sparsely and belatedly, to roll up and hang hopefully about along the route, uttering agreeable cheers and convinced that the show was built to continue. So she's starting to get some professional and commercial success for writing the Lord mm-hmm. Peter story. And then yeah. the other thing, which is, I think, the bigger thing, was that she said the far more delicate and dangerous thing was to take Peter away and perform a major operation on him. If the story was to go on, Peter had to become a complete human being with a past and a future, with a consistent family and social history, with a complicated psychology and even the rudiments of a religious outlook. Because the impossibility is that there's no 
like if she married him off to Harriet in this manner, Sayers would really be betraying like all of her own principles that we've been talking about all along, right? That the that a mm-hmm. good marriage or a good relationship or a good friendship demands equality. And how could there possibly right. be equality between the two of them when he shows up to like, you know rescue her. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I mean she really wrote herself into a corner there. <laughs> yeah, because there there's there is no equality. Like she comes from nothing. She's been self supporting. She's in this terrible situation. And if he shows up and rescues her and sweeps her off to, you know, like a, a life of luxury, mm-hmm. then she's always and forever beholden to him. Exactly. And yeah, that would so drastically undermine everything that Sayers has said so far about relationships. It would mean that Peter never had to grow up or become like a real human being, right? He's just... Harriet would just be another thing that he looked at and said, I want that and immediately possessed. Yeah, we've talked about how Peter has complexity as a character in even the very earliest book. Mm -hmm. But when Sayers started kind of planning this road for him, she was like, oh, he has to be something more for this story to make sense. Yeah. Which lucky for us, because we got several more books out of that that need for character progression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm really curious. I mean, I'd, I'd be very curious to hear from our listeners who might be reading the series, you know, along with us for the first time and going in chronological order, because you and I both read Gaudy Night before we read Strong Poison, right? And so when we came back to yes. Strong Poison, it was like, oh, here's Harriet. But I'm just yeah, so... Yeah, we know where this is going. Mm-hmm. But I'm so curious how she appears to someone who doesn't have all that like Mm -hmm. I don't know prolepsis for lack of a better word like doesn't know the Harriet that gets presented in the later books because she is kind of thinly Mm -hmm. sketched here and I feel like this is why critics wrongly tend to accuse Sayers of like oh she wrote the perfect man and then she wrote herself in as Harriet Vane and made her detective fall in love because it does seem to come out of the blue right right and her critics both professional critics and just people on Twitter. <laughs> I have seen be like, oh, Dorothy Sayers, isn't she the one that fell in love with her own character and wrote herself into the books to marry him? Mm-hmm. And it's like, no. no. But, you know, I've seen more than one person who hasn't read Sayers, but that's like the one thing they know about her. Right. Or think that, you know, think that they know. Which is so frustrating. <laughs> So annoying. Yeah. I mean, especially since you could make arguments that, like, Peter's temperament draws more on Sayers than maybe Harriet's temperament does. Mm-hmm. But I also think that you could make a very strong argument that Sayers was building both characters out of a framework of her own thoughts and feelings. Right. Yeah. But whatever she draws from her own experience, that's just a scaffolding that she builds the character around, you know? Right. Yeah. It's not a matter of, she based this character on herself. It's a matter of she drew on her own experiences because good writers do that Mm -hmm. and then used the books as a way to explore them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Doing that kind of character archeology span of who, you know, who does this character correspond to in the author's life is possibly the most boring version of like of literary (laughs) criticism that I can think of. And it's also like, you know, it's, it's, 
only interesting in very limited ways and yeah and here's here's the thing nobody like the the truism about Joyce's Ulysses right that Stephen Dedalus is a young James Joyce and Leopold Bloom is an old James Joyce like nobody has any problem with Joyce being reflected in two of his characters so why Mm -hmm. is it so far-fetched that Sayers would be reflected in two or more of her own characters either yeah and like why is that a reason to dismiss her work right it's like what what if she did directly mm-hmm. write harriet vane as a reflection of herself yeah like why not why does why would that devalue her work? exactly no male writer in the canon is ever called to task for that so right hmm. so the answer is misogyny yeah just some good old-fashioned misogyny that isn't old-fashioned at all because it's never gone out of fashion yeah uh, so back to the book. <laughs> um, there is, I mean, I remember you saying very early, like when we were talking about whose body that, you know, it's also funny that people accuse Sayers of this because she, her, the first comparison she makes on Peter is, you know, to maggots. Yes. And Peter actually asks Harriet, it'd be one thing if you're not attracted to me. Like, I don't positively repel you, do I? Because if I do, then I'll, you know, I'll leave you alone forever. And Harriet kindly and a little sadly says, no, you don't repel me. And Peter asks, I don't remind you of white slugs or make you go goose flesh all over. So it's almost like he's picking up on his creator's, you know, um, picture of of the maggots breeding in cheese. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but to still be talking about this first meeting between Peter and Harriet, Mm -hmm. he mentions to her that his mother likes the look of her. Mm -hmm. He says, my mother's the only one that counts and she likes you very much from what she's seen of you. And Harriet says, so you had me inspected? (laughs) And Peter says, no, dash it all. I seem to be saying all the wrong things today. I was absolutely stunned that first day in court and I rushed off to my mater, who's an absolute dear and the kind of person who really understands things. And I said, look here, here's the absolutely one and only woman and she's being put through a simply ghastly awful business and for God's sake, come and hold my hand. (laughs) I think that's so sweet. This whole episode is just going to be us going through this first meeting and being like, I love these slides. I know. Oh my goodness. And the Uh, chemistry between them just already, right? Like Harriet is... I mean, she's really quite brutal, which who who could blame her? Right. She throws, she's been through a lot. lot. Yeah. And she throws in his face like, you're bearing in mind, aren't you, that I've had a lover? Mm-hmm. Because yes, <laughs> hello, double standards. Harriet's a ruined woman yes. in the eyes of the world. And I love Peter's response. Yes. He says, oh, yes, so have I if it comes to that. In fact, several. I can provide quite good testimonials. <laughs> I'm told I make love rather nicely, only I'm at a disadvantage at the moment. One can't be very convincing at the other end of a table with a bloke looking in at the door. Yeah. But I feel like that's just the perfect response, right? He's he's it like, is. it would be yes. the height of hypocrisy for me to care at all about the fact that you've had a lover when I've had several and nobody in the world cares about my past, my sexual past. Mm-hmm. I mean, like other than just like going through this whole conversation <laughs> line by line and talking about how much we love them. <laughs> do we have more to say about um, Peter's interview with Harriet? Um, I think it's interesting that. So right after he, you know, he's like, right, do I repulse you? <laughs> he very blithely is like, you know, any minor alterations, you know, if you want me to grow a mustache or <laughs> change the way I part my hair, I'm, I'm happy to do it. And Harriet says, Please don't alter yourself in any particular. 
And it's kind of a throwaway line, but it, it's interesting because it points forward to later on, Peter goes and talks to our old friend and his old friend, Marjorie Phelps, because he's trying to get more information about that bohemian crowd that um, boys and Harriet mm-hmm. hung out with. And there, Marjorie says to him, Peter, do please be happy. I mean, you've always been the comfortable sort of person that nothing could touch. Don't alter, will you? And the narrative says that was the second time Whimsy had been asked not to alter himself. The first time the request had exalted him. This time it terrified him. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that interesting for a couple reasons. One, I think because it's it's starting to pick up that thread that for all that he's trying to use all of his usual distancing tactics of, of putting on that silly ass persona, like this case does mean a great deal to him and he's terrified Mm -hmm. that he's not going to be able to acquit Harriet's name right right because he only has one month before the new trial exactly he has a very tight timeline Mm -hmm. and I think it's it's picking up on that fact that Peter understands for better or worse he's not going to come out of this case the same person if he loses he -hmm. loses her and if he wins to be worthy of her he's going to have to change who he is and I think it's interesting that the the narrative pairs Harriet saying, you know, don't alter yourself kind of flippantly and Marjorie saying it because like, I think we've touched on this a little bit previously. There's a way I think in which female characters that showed up in previous books kind of point forward to Harriet. Mm -hmm. Like I think most particularly Anne Dorland, right. As a kind of proto Harriet. Yeah. There's a strong parallel between them, at least situationally. Mm -hmm. Anne Dorland, you know, she's been hurt by a man. She's been put in a situation where it really looks like she could have committed a crime. She's innocent, but so much evidence seems to point to her. Mm -hmm. And the actions of other people have put her into kind of an appalling place in the eyes of society. You know, like all those things kind of add up to be kind of a a prelude to Harriet Bain's situation. Exactly. Yeah, that was, I mean, I don't know that I have much more to to say other than, (laughs) like, I think this book does pick up on themes from a lot of the other books as well right like yeah kind of callbacks mm-hmm. well and I think you know Dorothy Sayers was obviously very interested in in women and in the roles that women find themselves in socially and what are the limits and barriers around women and you know I think that Dorothy Sayers was very interested in writing different types of women because mm-hmm. we've you no know, we've seen a really good range of different female characters because sometimes you know like sometimes even female writers don't write a broad variety of female characters yeah and I think that you know Sayers experimented with women who were unlikable women who were bitter about their their lives women who were progressive and so I feel like Harriet Vane is kind of a lot of those character studies kind of convalescing Mm mm-hmm which is not to say, not to give anyone the impression that I think that Harriet Vane is not like a fully realized character in her own right. Yeah, I mean, Sayers even says Harriet starts as a person, right? Whereas right. Peter has to become one. Right. I wonder how much of that is because as we are going to talk about in our next episode, you know, Sayers gave some of her own struggles and experiences to Harriet. Mm-hmm. And that is a good tool as a writer for giving a character life just immediately out of the gate Mm -hmm. yeah because you give them a struggle that you know and yeah I didn't have a a formulated thought around that (laughs) no I think it's quite complete but yeah I mean like definitely one one way to bring a character to life is to project on them (laughs) 
it, it's foolproof, which is not to say, I, again, that I think that Harriet is just a projection of Sayers, mm-hmm. but that Sayers did use herself as a, as a source. Yes. Yeah. Herself. And I think, you know, as we talked about in our episode with Mo Moulton, the experiences that her friends were having too, mm-hmm. right? These, these women that yeah. she'd met in Oxford, these highly educated women who mm-hmm. were in many ways like accomplished and ambitious beyond what their their social times could allow for right Hmm. should we end on bunter bunter coming to peter and very tactfully (laughs) asking if if his lordship would like to make any changes to his domestic arrangements because because bunter can't possibly imagine that peter will will do anything other than (laughs) save the day and bunter can't imagine any young lady possibly saying no to his lordship (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Do you want to give a little sketch of that scene for our listeners, just to put that in context? Yeah. It's just like a a little throwaway scene, but it's so funny. Yeah, the bunter scene comes out a little bit out of nowhere. It's in chapter eight. Peter is tasking Bunter with doing what Bunter does best, which is, you know, go and go and charm the household staff, uh, the female household staff <laughs> at Norman Urquhart's and, you know, see if you can find out anything about that meal that they had together. But then Bunter, Bunter just very gently <laughs> says, uh, <laughs> so, you know, he's hovering a bit and, and Whimsy says, Bunter, I have a yeah. sensation of being hovered over. I do not like it. <laughs> But it says, I beg your lordship's pardon. Uh, it had occurred to my mind to ask your lordship with, with every respect. Oh, God, Bunter, don't break it gently. I can't bear it. Stab and end the creature. What is it? I wish to ask you, my lord, whether your lordship thought of making any changes in your establishment. <laughs> changes, Bunter, when I've just so eloquently expressed to you my undying attachment to the loved routine of coffee, bath, razor, socks, eggs and bacon and the old familiar faces. You're not giving me warning, are you? No, indeed, my lord. I should be very sorry to lead your lordship's service, but I thought it possible that if your lordship was about to contract new ties... Sometimes when a gentleman reorganizes his household on a matrimonial basis, the lady may prefer to have a voice in the selection of the gentleman's personal assistance, in which case, um, and Peter says, this comes of training people to be detectives. <laughs> but I love that, like, there at no point has Peter expressed to Bunter any of, you know, this interest in Harriet. I love that Bunter just knows him so well that he's like, oh, I, I know exactly yeah. why why you're doing this. And also, I am convinced that, of course, you will save the day and, you know, bring home Mrs. Whimsy at some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, not Mrs. Whimsy. She'll be Lady Peter. That's true. Her ladyship. Yes. <laughs> yes. And Peter's just like, it seems I'm being obvious. <laughs> being obvious. Quite wonderful. Yes. But like having done all of these lighthearted bits, I do want to, at the very end of, I think, chapter 10, mm-hmm. there's a line I want to touch on, which, you know, there there's some plot that's happened that we haven't talked about yet, although we will cover more of that in our next episode. But at the end of chapter 10, Whimsy is, you know, he's mm-hmm. been contemplating the idea that Philip Boys committed suicide mm-hmm. and he's just been talking to Philip Boys's cousin about the possibility and then he's it's the narrative says that he pattered along Bedford Row. <laughs> so he's strolling along and he he seems to be in a fairly positive frame of mind and he's saying perhaps the fellow really did commit suicide. I hope he did. I wish I could question him. I'd put him through it, blast him. I've got about 15 different analyses of his character already, all different. It's ungentlemanly to commit suicide without leaving a note to say you've done it. 
gets people into trouble, which I think is a throwback to Clouds of Witness. Mm-hmm. Direct. Direct. Where there was so, so much, so much trouble. trouble. Yeah, he says earlier that he particularly hates the suicide cases because they're so hard to prove. Yes. Yes. So much trouble because... Cathcart didn't leave a note for the people there. He just wrote a letter to someone. Posted it off. Away. But Peter follows that up by saying, when I blow my brains out, he stopped. I hope I shan't want to, he said. I hope I shan't need to want to. Mother wouldn't like it, and it's messy. But I'm beginning to dislike this job of getting people hanged. It's damnable for their friends. I won't think about hanging. It's unnerving. And it's... This isn't the first time that we've seen Peter have a moment of kind of like suicidal ideation right Mm -hmm. even earlier in this book at the beginning of chapter five he is visiting with miss clemson and kind of talking through the case with her and consulting with her and he says if i've got to find a homicidal maniac i may as well cut my throat at once and miss clemson says don't say that even in jest and there is kind of a nihilistic sense of humor Mm -hmm. that we've seen all along with Peter Wright, uh, which is something that I think makes perfect sense to be characteristic of people who had gotten through World War One, especially at this point. Strong Poison was published in 1930. I think that people were starting to, like already starting to worry about World War Two mm-hmm. becoming a looming possibility. And sometimes when the world seems to be going up in flames, nihilistic jokes seem to be the only thing that helps. Yeah. Uh, Which explains uh, why so many people of our generation and younger say things that are a bit nihilistic. But the fact that Peter stops and realizes that there's a potential for this to be not a joke. Mm -hmm. You know, he says, I shan't need to want to. This idea that if he loses this case, he's just like, oh, it will potentially destroy me if I don't succeed. I don't know. Like... I don't have a conclusion to draw from that. It just really, like, any time I'm reading Strong Poison and I get to that moment, it just really strikes me. Yeah. I Well, I think it's, I think because it's easy to read this book and even question a bit if Peter's, you know, the, the infatuation with Harriet. And I'm calling it an infatuation because, like, how could it be anything other than that, right? right? He doesn't actually know her. Right. He certainly feels like he knows her, but that's just based on him observing her. Mm-hmm. It's not a... Yeah. A, there's been no way for them to build a relationship, so... Right. And I think I think that's actually why the narrative is so careful to kind of constantly puncture his bubble, especially when he's with her. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And to often have her be the one to do it. Um, <laughs> so, so I think it's easy to kind of read this as like, oh, he's... You know, to take him at his word when he's like, it would be jolly to be married to you. You know, you just, you seem interesting. And mm-hmm. and not to understand that that is a front that he's putting on because he's terrified that this is going to go the wrong way. And I and I think this mm-hmm. particular bit where he kind of stops himself from, from following or from like saying something that he might have to make good on later, it comes almost exactly halfway through the book. And I, and I think it's just one of those moments where we're being shown as readers that no this is actually very very serious for him right similarly to how in clouds of Mm -hmm. witness where he's like "Ooh, jolly footprints and then at one point he says to charles like very seriously like don't think that because i'm acting this way it means i don't care or that i'm not deeply affected by what's going on but it's it's kind of the only defense mechanism he has Mm -hmm. yeah 
I'd kind of like to wrap this episode up mm-hmm. by circling back to Miss Clemson and talking a little bit about the cattery. Yes. So Miss Clemson, of course, we've met before. She in Unnatural Death acted as an inquiry agent for Lord Peter, and he sent her out to investigate for him undercover. And since that time, he has set up an operation uh, that Miss Clemson runs for him. And it is ostensibly a typing bureau. <laughs> and it does have a few ladies who are typists who, who do actual typing for novelists and men of science, I think the book says. Mm-hmm. But the primary job is women who are spinsters like Miss Clemson or just women who are looking for work. Mm -hmm. Widows, I think. Women who have had businesses that failed. The book says even a few bright young things who were bored with the club scene. So basically it's women who need some kind of outlet, who need a career or who just need an interest Mm -hmm. or need a way to make money yeah they need to support themselves and um, the organization primarily answers advertisements the the type of advertisements that are trying to like lure young women or are trying to con elderly women out of their money so like fraudulent advertisements get investigated by this group of women and peter like it's funded by lord peter and he, it says that he sometimes refers to it as his cattery, mm-hmm. which I think is delightful. Yeah, So, it, but it's basically an investigative agency of women. And yeah, yeah. So, but we find that Peter has set this, this operation up and Miss Clemson is running it for him when he, he goes there and is visiting with Miss Clemson in her office and consulting her about the case. Yeah. yeah. I love the fact that Peter has taken his idea about, you know, starting with Miss Clemson and gone like how to make this a larger operation, mm-hmm. how to go from one spinster to several and like how should they be organized and what should they be doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll see as we continue our discussions um, just how resourceful these spinsters can be and how how much they can help yes. in an investigation. Yes. I think there's really, you know, it's it's something that people talk about a lot of like a, at a certain age, women become invisible to society mm-hmm. because they're no longer young and attractive. And I think there's a way in which Peter really like weaponizes is the wrong word, but I think he uses that kind of social invisibility to his advantage, you know, similarly to how he sends Bunter Mm -hmm. to talk to servants. He can send spinsters into places that he himself would just be far too noticeable, whereas they can, they can figure some things out. So it's, it's kind of cool to see Mm -hmm. that acknowledgement that like the detective is not God, you know, the detective has limitations. Right. Yeah. So in two weeks, we'll come back to this first half of the book and talk more about the role of the cattery in the investigation, as well as the bits of Sayers's biography that she was directly picking up on, especially when it comes to the Philip boys and Harriet Vane relationship. And we will be introduced to some other characters as well. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at WhimsyPod. That's Whimsy, W-I-M-S-E-Y. And you can find transcripts and show notes of our episodes on our website at asmywhimsytakesme.com.
Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd love for you to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcatcher of choice. And we also hope that you'll tell all your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do. Join us next time for more Talking Piffle. Mm-hmm.